This is AutoLine This Week, coming to you from the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Join me from the floor of the Washington Auto Show as I talk with Phil Murtaugh from Coda, the electric car maker, Roland Huang of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Dave Sikowski from the Red Hot Hyundai brand, and Margot Oge from the EPA. All that coming up on AutoLine This Week. And now I'll be talking with Phil Murtaugh, the CEO of Coda Automotive. Coda, we're a clean energy technology company headquartered in Los Angeles. Uh, we have a joint venture with Lishan uh, uh, Power Battery Company out of Tianjin that manufactures a specific use automotive uh, lithium ion battery cell. Um, we use that technology to build an electric vehicle. We sell EV propulsion systems to other guys who want electric cars. Uh, and we use our battery technology for energy storage purposes. Um, where we're at right now is we're very close to launching our car. Uh, our car is roughly 20% U.S. content. If you talk about clean, clean energy cars, um, we have the highest amount of U.S. content with very few exceptions, two exceptions. But you take a look at Prius. Prius is 100% non-U.S. Uh, Nissan Leaf, 100% non-U.S. So. Uh, although we do sub-assembly manufacturing in China, we have a very high uh, amount of, of U.S. content. Um, our f- uh, first batch of saleable vehicles is in Benicia, California right now, undergoing final assembly. We will start delivering these vehicles to customers uh, in California in late February. By the end of 2012, we will have opened up uh, distributorships uh, throughout the United States. Now, one of the claims to fame on your electric car versus the others that are out there right now is you have a much bigger battery, hence a much bigger range. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, what, what we focused on was how do we convince people that they can buy an electric car and not have to worry about going to grandma's and then not being able to get home. Uh, we have actually now two different battery sizes we will launch with a 31 kilowatt hour battery that has range up to 125 miles um, and then later this year we'll introduce a 36 kilowatt hour battery that has a range of up to 150 miles. I think what distinguishes us from other pure EV manufacturers is that we have focused on developing battery management technology and thermal management technology that allows us to maintain consistent range. So our goal is to be able, in our, in our 31 kilowatt hour pack, you'll get up to 125 and under good conditions. If you drive uh, carefully, you can get 125. But in almost all conditions, you'll get between 90 and, and 110 miles. Uh, our goal is dependable range. When you get in the car, know that you can go where you're going and come back. We do that by a combination of our BMS and thermal management system. What's BMS? Battery management system. Okay. Sorry. Uh, we actually acquired a company called Energy CS um, mid-2011. Energy CS is one of the globe's leading battery management uh, developers. Uh, the guys who started uh, Energy CS, uh, they're the guys who did the battery management system for the original Chevy EV1. Hmm. And they've been doing battery management technology ever since. 
Uh, we believe that we have class-leading propulsion technology given our battery management and, and uh, thermal management systems. The thermal management system, what it does is it maintains the battery temperature in, in a range of 20 to 40 degrees C, which is where batteries really op operate optimally. Mm -hmm. uh, and what our technology does a little bit differently than other guys, not only the, we, the pack, but every cell within the pack, we maintain in that uh, temperature range. Now, when you make these claims of uh, driving range, 120 miles or so, we've seen other EV makers claim something for their car that when the EPA finally tested the car, they said, no, it doesn't go that far. We've seen that happen with the Leaf, the Volt, well, and even need, Fisker. No, you need to be careful. The EPA does something very interesting with electric vehicles that they don't do with gas vehicles. The, the uh, range test is driving the vehicle through the gas engine uh, MPG test, the, the uh, city cycle uh, test, the highway cycle test that they do for gas cars. They measure, this, they measure the city mileage, they measure, measure the gas mileage. You know, one's 19, one's 26, and you get a combined uh, 22. Mm -hmm. In EVs, the, the EPA came out with a brilliant way of measuring city. You get, if, if you get um, 150 miles in the city and you get 100 miles on a highway, the average is 125 miles, then they multiply by 75%. So your EPA range is only 100 miles. Mm -hmm. Fact of the matter is, our 31 kilowatt hour battery will go maximum 125, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, normally, it'll go 90 to 110 under, under almost all conditions, mm -hmm. even when it gets very cold. The, what yeah. sets us well, that's apart, where I was going. And the, what yeah, sets keep us going. apart that, from other is guys good. is our thermal, manage, thermal mm -hmm. management system. Um, we, can, we can decrease the temperature dependency of range. You, you have seen reports from unsatisfied customers of, of other EV manufacturers that, that they only get 40% of the of the published range or, or 50 or 60% of the published range, we won't get 100% of the 125, but we believe that we'll pretty consistently get 80 to 90% mm -hmm. uh, uh, range attainment regardless of thermal conditions outside. How do you uh, handle it? Is it an air or liquid cooling have, heating system? We have an active air thermal management system. Uh, we decided on air versus liquid for a variety of reasons, but we believe that's the, the right approach. Um, and as I told you before, we developed some proprietary uh, technologies that uh, give us a closed loop uh, airflow system that maintains every cell within the entire pack at a consistent range. So, so what, what happened, the reason that, that uh, you lose range in an in a, uh, EV, our, our battery pack has 728 cells. Uh, another manufacturer has six, over 6,000 cells in their vehicle. If all cells are operating exactly the same, you'll get that 125. But mm -hmm. what will happen is through temperature variations, through the cells aren't exactly the same, you know, manufacturing variability. If you start getting cells operating a little bit differently, that dramatically reduces the overall efficiency of the, of the pack. Our battery management system and thermal management system, the, the, the technology allows us to keep all the cells operating in a very, very uh, uh, close proximity to each other. That's how you optimize the efficiency of the pack, and that's why we get dependable range.
Next, we'll be talking with Roland Huang from the Natural Resources Defense Council. These oil wells in the United States are gushing. You know, we're, we're getting so much more. What happens to the fuel economy standards if the price of oil really doesn't go much higher than it is right now on an inflation-adjusted basis? Because doesn't that make it hard to justify the extra cost for the CAFE standard? Well, don't forget that even with the enhanced production of U.S. oil, the U.S. has 2% of the world oil reserves. We consume 25% of the world oil. We're never going to be able to control oil prices. Other countries that have all the reserves will always control the oil prices. But that's exactly the reason why we need long-term certainty with fuel efficiency standards. Because it's very difficult for General Motors or Ford or for Chrysler or any auto company to plan for what fuel prices are going to be in 2015, much, much less June of 2012, right? <laughs> right. So, but the problem is that with high and volatile prices, when, when, the, when the prices spike, as you know, consumers flock to fuel-efficient uh, products. The rate of change in the consumer market is very rapid when the oil markets change. It's completely out of step with the, you, uh, with the auto industry's planning cycle. They need five years, a, a, a drivetrain, a fuel-efficient drivetrain, advanced drivetrain, 10 years, right. maybe even 15 years. Maybe 20. <laughs> <laughs> maybe even 20, maybe. <laughs> but the key is that we need to ensure that the U.S. auto industry has the right products in the face uh, very uncertain oil prices. Uh, it's the regulatory certainty of a fuel economy standards which has really benefited the U.S. auto industry and we need to continue with that into the future. Mm -hmm. well, are you troubled that uh, hybrids really haven't set the world on fire? Electric cars, although there is an availability issue that, that regards them, but again, didn't set the world on fire because those two components, EVs and hybrids, are, are crucial to be able to meet the 54.5 MPG standard. Well, actually, it's very, very interesting from the EPA and the DOT and recent analysis of meeting the 54.5 MPG standard. It's actually going to be met primarily. 80% of the vehicle fleet in 2025 to meet the standards will be rather conventional gasoline vehicle engine, albeit very sophisticated and very efficient gasoline engines, but the, the internal combustion engine, the gasoline conventional engine is far from dead. Only about 3%, according to the agency analysis, battery electrics are needed to meet the standard. I think battery electrics are going to do much better than that, but in order to comply, we just need 3%. Am I troubled by the current market for electrics and hybrids? Ab absolutely not. I think it's absolutely crazy for anybody to make predictions about what the electric vehicle market is going to be based upon one full years of sales. I agree, right, <laughs> okay. right. You can't do that, but, you can't. but the hybrid thing, we've had hybrids for over a decade now, and, and they're still 2%-ish of the market. Yeah, yeah, and hybrids are getting better, they're getting more models, the price is coming down, so I think hybrid, hybrids will do fine. I think one of the ironic things about the higher fuel efficiency standards is that now hybrids have competition from very efficient gasoline engine vehicle tech technologies, right? Like the EcoBoost engines that, that Ford has, mm -hmm. Skyactiv, Mazda, and all, you know, all the other different uh, the names and labels for these. Uh, but that's I ironic, but that's good. Hybrids will get better. Mm -hmm. um, hybrids will have more models. The technology is getting cheaper, and uh, they, they'll, they'll, they'll come along, um, I'm quite confident. Yeah. So the new standards are foot print-based, they're size-based. That means the manufacturer does not have any advantage to sell small cars to compensate for bigger cars because no matter what size of fleet you build, you have to increase the fuel efficiency of every size model. What does that mean? That means that your crossover utility vehicle, your compact car, your mid-size car, your pickup truck, 
all have to improve fuel economy, which means that there's going to be an expansion of choice. So the next time you go to the dealership, absolutely. The next time you go look into a, a, a you know, a, a look for a, for a car or, or across a utility or pickup, you will have the option. You almost certainly will be buying a more fuel-efficient vehicle than, than what you currently have, and you will certainly have a lot more choices available to you in terms of what level of fuel efficiency you want. Good. Uh, Ready Kilowatt, <laughs> there's, a, there's a good internet name <laughs> nice for you, says, uh, he asks, aren't new passenger cars in California incredibly, incredibly clean? Shouldn't carbs spend less time regulating new cars and spend more time regulating the real polluters, industry and residents? Well, when it comes to California, uh, 90 percent of Californians still breathe unhealthy air, okay? That means that we got to leave no stone unturned looking for cost-effective reductions of smog-forming pollutants. And that's exactly what, the, what traditionally California has done really for the last four or five decades. It's not just cars, it's the fuels they run on. California has pioneered cleaner burning gasoline. It's not just tailpipes, it's smokestacks. We have very stringent regulations on smokestacks. It's backyard barbecues. You know, you yeah. know, I think there's, there's yeah. all kinds of stories on, you know, on, on California. But the fact of the matter is, I grew up in Southern California during the 70s. Air was horrendous. Stage one smog alerts. You could, they would not let you outside for recess. Okay, I mean, wow, it was that's really how bad easy it was. Thing. So we've made huge progress. huge progress. Huge progress. And cars and the auto industry, absolutely a huge part of that of, of contributing in fact, to that. In fact, my progress. argument is there's probably no American alive today who's ever breathed air as clean as it is right now. Uh, yeah, I, I can't go all the way back in history, but well, I know I say alive yeah, today, yeah. people alive today. Yeah, yeah, smog was absolutely terrible uh, after World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we hear those stories. Uh, yeah, absolutely horrendous. And uh, we've through technology, innovation, regulations, which drive that innovation, really have made huge progress. And it's it's, it's great for our economy, uh, great for uh, uh, you know jobs, and great for everybody who breathes air, it's, it's just a tremendous success story. My next guest is the head of sales for Hyundai, Dave Zukowski. I joke with people that you must have the easiest job in the industry because, man, your sales just skyrocketed last year. It doesn't feel that way, but I get that question a lot. But no, it's been it's it's been a really good uh, four years. And what's 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 interesting is this happened in really a tough time in the in the industry, right? I mean, the economy collapsed, the industry collapsed. But when you're positioned like Hyundai is with good value, good warranty, great quality, good fuel efficiency, and more recently, beautiful styling. Not a bad place to be. But you had some environmental things, let's say, that helped you. Uh, yes. The Japanese had their legs kicked out from under them. Right. If you go back two years earlier, two of the big three were in bankruptcy. Yeah. I think that really it, helped it, Hyundai. Well, and you're not going to have that kind of help now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we certainly aren't banking on another tsunami or anything like that. We, we were very concerned last year. We have um, global capacity constraints as well. And we were very concerned last year um, that we would run out of product. And we, we got a, a bit... Uh, it was a bit fortunate for us because we didn't really get hurt in the summer because everybody else was out of product too. So, yeah, we have a, we've had a stable um, exchange rate, which has helped us for sure. We've had our key competitors. You couldn't you couldn't plot out a business strategy that says when we launch one of our most important vehicles like Sonata, it's almost at exactly the same time that Camry goes through some of these recalls. You just you just can't <laughs> plot that stuff out. Right. And then and then you go into all sorts of. Uh, uh, huge uh, uh, out of control uh, issues with earthquakes and tsunamis. So um, yeah, that that is is obviously helped us, but it's been really driven by good solid product, a great strategy. And and you've been riding the crest of the wave in your product cadence, right? But now you you've got the Azera coming out right. this year. 
It, it's right? actually, I mean, the difference is the, the actual cadence is more aggressive this year than it has been in the last two. Is that right? But, I thought you were going into a bit of a yeah, dip right yeah, now. Yeah, it, it's just not core vehicles. So we started two years ago with Tucson and it doubled Tucson sales. Then you come out with Sonata and it doubled Sonata sales. Then you come out with Elantra and it doubled Elantra sales. Then you come out with Accent and it doubled Accent sales. And those are all big volume vehicles. This year, Azera, not a big volume vehicle, important vehicle, not a mm -hmm. big volume vehicle. And then we just introduced in Detroit, uh, redesigned uh, a Genesis Coupe, and a we just came out with the Veloster, which is a very cool car, and, and we announced that it's coming out with the Turbo, which is awesome. We go to Chicago, we'll announce a, a Elantra Coupe and an Elantra 5-door, which are both sensational. A lot of people bring coupes out to make their their four-door look better. Mm -hmm. We don't really need that with ours, but it's a sensational-looking car. Mm -hmm. And the five-door uh, replaces the existing Elantra Touring, much more European-looking, beautiful car. And then, and then you go into um, uh, the summer, and there we've got a big vehicle launch. We're going to start building a new Santa Fe, which, from a family resemblance standpoint, um, Elantra to Sonata will get you Tucson to Santa Fe. Beautiful car, very urban-looking, just beautifully styled. So you're not going into a bit of a dip in no, your it's, product it's, cadence. It's, we, uh, John talks about, John Kraftjik talks about uh, 7-11, seven new products in 11 months. So our product guys are pretty Zow, busy. But they're, but they're smaller volume products. Mm -hmm. up, up until we get to Santa Fe, they're not huge volume products. Right. How's it going with uh, the Genesis sedans? You know, you you you, get, you took the Hyundai brand yeah. into a much higher price level, right. into a much uh, more kind of different segment than you've been in it before. Right. It's it's been um, it's been great. It's you know it's um, uh, the Hyundai. We all know the Hyundai perception hasn't been. I'm going to go into a Hyundai store and look for a thirty-five thousand dollar vehicle. The absolute best thing that happened to us right upon um, launch of the vehicle was North American Car of the Year for Genesis, which really gave us the credibility that said we can play in the stage, we can build cars in any segment that'll compete globally and the, and the Genesis has been um, really strong and it's in its third year right now it's getting ready for a refresh but we had a record sales volume year last year and what it allowed us to do was to bring Equus into the market so Equus is our flagship vehicle and it starts at $58,000 and and the success of the Genesis and we got a lot of questions about uh, Genesis was this another um, um, uh, Volkswagen uh, product like with, the Fayette like 10 the Fayette, Fayette. And, and, and our answer was you know we sell uh, $30,000 vehicles right now and this will be a $33,000 vehicle so it's not a big walk like the Fayette 10 was and so mm -hmm. it's proven successful it's allowed us to bring in Equus Equus has proven successful so now premium vehicles you know vehicles that are thirty-five dollars to $65,000 are not an insignificant piece of our business and that that is the quickest way to raise your brand, right? Mm -hmm. Is bringing a different type of buyer, a different demographic. It changes the way people look at your vehicles. It puts you on shopping lists you may not have been on before. Well, I haven't looked at Equus sales. What are they running at? We, we did. Now? We had planned to sell about twenty-three hundred last year. We ended up about thirty-one hundred. We'll do thirty-five or thirty-six hundred. Not a big volume piece, mm -hmm. but it, but it's an image car. This year, we think we can improve our sales eight to nine percent. We think the industry That's will be still big growth. Nine. It's it's big growth, <laughs> but when you look at it from a market share standpoint, it's probably going to be pretty oh, flattish. Well, gotcha. Right. So it provides us an opportunity, sort of like the import constraints did for Honda and Toyota in the 80s, to fix other pieces of our business. We understand it's a cyclical business. You're not always going to have the hottest, most beautiful product. And when you don't, you have to have a real solid foundation to get you through those down cycles. Our guys historically haven't done a good job on used vehicles, because back when Hyundai started, uh, Hyundai was $10,000, a used vehicle was a competitor, so they didn't do both, they did one or the other. And now that we've, we've in, the price of our cars has gone up, transaction prices are up, it's opened up a whole new market on certified pre-owned, we're spending a lot of time working on certified pre-owned to help their, their, their profit center into the stores. Same on fixed operations. 
good news is our cars don't break down. Bad news is our cars don't break down. So, so many stores look at their look at the store and say we'd like to have uh, fixed absorption, the ability to, of, of of service and parts expenses to cover overhead expenses at about 65 percent. We we run closer to 48, 49, 50 percent, and and we don't do a good job getting people back to our dealership for for our customer pay work for maintenance and light repair, and and. For Hyundai, when they don't go to your dealership on their first service visit, we've lost them for good. They're gone. They don't go to another Hyundai dealer. They just go to the aftermarket. We don't see them again. So we are working very closely on new service initiatives this year, um, talking about the, the handoff from sales to service, the introduction to service, the, the dentist office type of process for scheduling the first service appointment, uh, express lube, those things like that mm -hmm. to drive more customer pay business in our stores. Because we really do, from, from, a, from a, the ability to retain our service customers and grow them for future uh, uh, vehicle sales, um, we need to do a better job at point of sale and, and that's really one of our key strategies this year. Coming up next is Margot Oge from the Environmental Protection Agency. I, I got to imagine that a lot of your time has been involved with the fuel economy standards. The fuel economy greenhouse gas standards, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. There's been public hearings going on around the country. What kind of Actually, feedback are you getting? I just came back from San Francisco, so we have, uh, we had three public hearings. The first public hearing was in the, in the right city that we should have the first public hearing, which was Detroit. Michigan, the birth of the automotive industry. Uh, then we went to Philadelphia, and a couple of days ago, we had the third and last public hearing in San Francisco. I have been doing this job, I, I'm not gonna tell you how many years, because that will <laughs> give you out my age for many, many years. I have not seen a more overwhelming support uh, throughout, from the public, the stakeholders, NGOs, as I have seen at these three public hearings. We had um, young people, we had a new group um, that is called Raging Grannies. Actually, we had four grandmothers, um, grandmothers, I won't tell you their age, dressed up, they came to testify and they sang two songs. <laughs> Apparently there is a group. <laughs> you can they sang songs at a public hearing? <laughs> about clean cars. But seriously, we had over 400 participants, uh, anywhere from public citizens, uh, representing you know, young people, religious groups. For the first time I went to public hearings with a, a religious take. We had um, veterans, including you know, former generals testifying. Clearly we had the car industry, we had suppliers, uh, NGOs, the dealers, the National Dealers Association. Uh, and over, overall, I thought it was a pretty broad support. But of course, no one's going to argue for lower you know, fuel economy standards. And uh, I, I think if you asked anybody, would you like to have a car that gets better fuel economy? Of course, everybody would. The cost is you, or the, the issue, as you know, comes yes. down to cost yes. and yeah. how quickly can yeah. the automakers yeah. bring the technology yes. in to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. clearly. Um, we think um, that will be an additional $2,000 in 2025. So when you buy a vehicle in 2025, an estimate, you know, some of it will be lower, some of it will be higher, will be about $2,000. Uh, the savings that you will have because of fuel savings, uh, for the life of that vehicle will be over $6,000 in fuel savings and net benefits will be about $4,400. So clearly 
um, the benefits of the program uh, are significant vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the cost mm -hmm. of the program. The, the fuel economy savings, is that based on today's fuel prices? That's another or what? very good point. So we're assuming that the gasoline and diesel prices in 2025 will be about the same. Mm. EIA just came out with their 2012 estimate uh, uh, and they are suggesting an additional 30 cents a gallon higher than what we had assumed in our proposal. For this year or for 2025? For 20, for their 2012 estimate is mm -hmm. for 2025. Uh -huh. We use their 2011 estimate for uh -huh. 2025. So clearly here what we're saying is if gasoline prices are about the same, the consumer will cut you know, the fuel cost about half at the pump. Mm -hmm. uh, will cost more up front, but you'll pocket over $4,000 in net fuel savings, assuming gasoline are three, three mm -hmm. dollars a gallon. Of course, uh, the national auto dealers have said, whoa, 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 you know, not so fast because uh, $2,000 is still going to be uh, a significant impact on pricing. And they, they don't seem to be as supportive of uh, the standards as everybody else might be. So, um, we're talking about $2,000 cost. We're not talking about price. So if you were an OEM, uh, you would have to make decisions how to price your new vehicles and where to put these advanced technologies. Now, every f vehicle will have to, make some, to have some improvement. Okay. But how the OEMs are going to price those standards, only they know and there are competitive issues. What I know is that 13 OEMs that represent 90% of the sales of cars in the United States support this standard for a couple of reasons. First, uh, this is a 50-state program, and they like the national program. It harmonizes with EPA, with NHTSA, and California. Second, it gives them a certainty to invest you know, for a long period of time. As you know, these technologies that we're talking about are pretty expensive, so they have to have a certainty for their investments. And finally, uh, it provides them with another look at the standard, because we all know 2025 is a long time from now. So in 2018, the agencies, Department of Transportation, Environmental Protection Agency, will reassess all these factors. Well, did we do it right? You know, mm -hmm. Have things changed? Mm -hmm. um, should we adjust the standard upwards, downwards, or leave it the same? So I think that, again, gives them the certainty of, of making investment. And that wraps up this show from the nation's capital. Thanks so much for joining me on AutoLine this week. And please join us again right here next week.